Hello, I'm Anjali Pereira. And I'm Katie Romero Finger. Welcome to Boss vs. Book. Boss vs. Book is essentially a book club for business leaders in podcast form. Together, Anjali and I are reading the books of the most successful leadership coaches of our time in a bid to figure out how they crushed it in business. We're doing this because we have just launched our own business consultancy, and we hope the advice from these renowned authors will inspire and guide us along our business journey. So join us as we apply the lessons we learn from these texts in real time to a real business. This is the ultimate test of whether business books like this actually work. Today, we're reading part one, chapter two of Simon Sinek's Start With Why. So Katie, so many things have been happening in the last couple of weeks. It's been incredible, right? I mean, it's it's kind of creepy, actually. Since we defined our North Star, it seems like things have just started to happen. And I don't, I'm not superstitious. I, I, I'm not sort of religious at all. I don't really believe in that kind of woo-woo stuff. But (laughs) even I think it's a little bit odd that um, the moment we kind of defined that North Star, things just started to fall into place, right? It feels a bit like divine intervention. Yeah. Especially (laughs) since it all happened like the day we came up with the North Star. Yeah. I mean, it was like a Thursday that we both came up with it and then, and discussed it. And then that night. Yeah. Yeah. You know, lots of connections, people contacting us. Um, It just feels like momentum has finally, not finally, I mean, we've really just launched recently, but it just really kind of all clicked at once. Yeah. I mean, the the big thing really for me was the fact that we found our why. Yeah. I mean, I mean, before that, we we did have a kind of purpose um, and and that was to change the way that marketing was perceived, right? Um, But we knew that it wasn't really our core why, you know, it was was more of an interim measure until we waited for the real core to come along. Um, And and it came. I mean, we found found what we we stand for um, and that is to bring people to life. And the moment we came across it, I just... I knew, I knew it was right. You know, yeah. it just felt, it felt so good. It felt awesome. And the and awesome, the even better part about it, I think, is that we say so much that stories are what we use through clients to find their why. And yet, and our why came from a previous client at some level. It was a story he told about us that we yeah. hold. Yeah. So it just seems very serendipitous. Yeah, it was it was Chris Hafner who just as a passing comment said um, when he was talking about us, it was as if you brought us to life, and and that just that just stuck with us, right? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want someone to say that about them from even yeah. a personal and professional perspective? And also for the very first time, we had someone reach out to us via our website just the other day, um, asking to have a chat, which was. I mean, totally unexpected. I wasn't expecting that website to work for us for at least like six months or so, but it's slowly working now. So that's really exciting. Yes, we were even saying to ourselves, did they really mean to write us or was this for someone else? <laughs> Is this some kind of bot? <laughs> did they mistakenly think we were something else? But no, it was for us. And uh, we've had a wonderful conversation with that person. And stay tuned because I think it could be a really amazing engagement for us. So today we're looking at chapter two, 
of uh, part one of Start With Why, and that chapter is titled Carrots and Sticks. As always, we're discussing our opinions of the text, and we're using our reading techniques that we developed to allow us to connect uh, on that deeper level with the principles outlined in the book. Yeah. So, Anjali, for those listeners out there that haven't read the book or maybe need a refresher, could you give us a summary of Simon Sinek's objectives for this or what you perceive are his objectives for this chapter? Yep. So in this chapter, essentially, Simon talks about how to get people to do what we want them to do uh, within the context of business, of course. Um, And he explains there are two different ways of doing this. One is manipulation and the other one is inspiration. Um, And it's important to clarify here, I think, um, and he does mention this in the text, by manipulation, he doesn't necessarily mean anything sinister. Um, He talks about a range of manipulations that are, you know, commonly used in business, Um, things like price, promotions, fear, peer pressure, aspirational messages, novelty. Um, And he goes into each one of these uh, tactics in detail. And he also tells us what the limitations of these manipulative tactics are. Um, and the hidden costs as well of, uh, of doing them. And he concludes by saying there is another way. Um, so essentially he's setting us up for part two of the book in which he's going to tell us exactly what that other way is. That's right. I agree with you. I think um, as marketers or as maybe disillusioned marketers, previous life marketers, <laughs> um, it was an easy read and it was easy to, I mean, he just kind of goes through everything you learn kind of in marketing 101, different ways to inspire. He doesn't really talk about inspire, obviously, as Anjali said, he's setting you up, setting us up. But the kind of, quote, manipulative background ways, brands, businesses, etc., get us to buy things. So Katie, what did you think? Did you like this chapter? So I think that for someone that maybe is not in the product or marketing space, I would, I would assume anyone really in business would pretty much, this would be kind of a review. I think he does a good job of breaking it down, but I don't think it's anything moving to the, like it didn't move me to the core much of what he wrote here, just probably because I knew it. Um, there were a couple random statements throughout that I thought, oh, that was pretty inspirational. Mm. That's true. But I don't know. It felt a little flat for me, the chapter. Mm. What about you? Yeah, I, I, I do know what you mean. Um, but there were there were a few um, instances of pieces that I really liked. I, I liked the fact that he brought them up. Um, I mean, even the very beginning, the way that he starts the chapter, I really like that. He says, there's barely a product or service on the market today that customers can't buy from someone else for about the same price, about the same quality, about the same level of service, and about the same features. If you truly have a first mover's advantage, it's probably lost in a matter of months. And I just I just really like this because I remember when we first started um, and we started telling people about what we did, um, we had people who were telling us that, oh, it's a really crowded marketplace. Um, it seems like a lot of people are doing this sort of thing these days. But I think what he's what Seneca is saying in this piece is that every marketplace is crowded, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the idea of a truly unique product is these days a bit of a farce. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's you don't need to be truly unique and, and innovative. You you just need to speak to a niche. I think that there is uh, it's important to differentiate between offerings that are unique and offerings that are are niche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's also he also makes on that same first page. I think that's totally true what you're saying. 
Um, and then he goes on to kind of defend that comment and what you've just said is if most companies don't really know why their customers are their customers or why their employees are their employees, then how do they know how to attract more employees and encourage loyalty among those they already have? And I think every company is going to compete on something. There's the same, you know, there's 50 right now, for example, I've been shopping for wireless headphones and of course didn't want to spend the money on the 150 actually the new ones are 250 euro or pound wherever you are in the world listening um apple noise canceling earpods so i bought the cheap ones that you know found on i don't know where i found them but they were fine they were like 25 bucks they're total (laughs) crap they turn off and on when they want um it's absolutely awful so there are alternatives but it's funny because like People are buying them. So if you think about it, you're like, okay, people don't want to spend the cash. But if if I as a consumer really knew what I like what the value I was getting out of with the Apple ones, we all know if I got the Apple ones, they'd last forever, they'd be amazing. But then this other competitor knows that people basically just want like a headphone that they can use that's wireless. And yeah. so they've done it. I've, they've conned me into buying it because it looks great. They bought it and it's total crap. And now I probably will end up spending the money on Apple ones that really work. But long story short, <laughs> price is a really good thing to compete on. If you, <laughs> it worked, it manipulated me, but I think you're right. I mean, I think the whole point is that even for, if we're talking about ourselves is that there's room in the market for so many different players, but mm-hmm. again, and I think his point will obviously be, hence the title of the book, Start With Why, is when a company really gets what they're going after and what they're doing, then that's probably what puts you above the others. So um, mm-hmm. so don't be discouraged. I think we you were saying we were a bit discouraged. We had felt that maybe there was too much competition in the market when, in fact, every opportunity we've had to have a conversation with people, people are like, I love what you're doing. I love what you're saying. And Mm. they've been around the block. They've dealt with other agencies or other companies, other organizations or consultants in a similar space, and they haven't heard our story. So, yeah, it's it's that growth mindset, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's it's the belief that, you know, there are enough pieces of the pie for everybody. Right. Right. So um, earlier you mentioned price. You brought up price. Um, And that leads us quite nicely into this this first manipulation um, that, that Cynic talks about, which is price. The price game, playing the price game. Um, So many companies are reluctant to play the price game, but they do because they know it is effective. So I guess the argument is that, especially for products, the the initial price drop causes people to switch to your brand, right? Um, And this is much easier for a product than a service, but you're hoping that they will then like your brand enough um, to to then stick with you even when the price goes back to normal, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't work. Prices, I think that's one of my biggest things when we do consulting, when we come across that, you know, especially when it's maybe entrepreneurs or people trying to make it get into an into a, a sector or a launch is they want to go in low. Mm. And I always say it's really, it's impossible to then raise your price and you have to go between knowing your value and going after the customer that wants you because of your value versus that just sees you as cheap. Yeah. Now, my headphone people probably are making a killing because there are a lot of people just buying. They're making money, you know, on economies of scale. They're getting a lot of people to buy really crappy headphones. But 
in the end, they're a headphones company. I doubt they're, they're a product company. They're not a brand. Mm-hmm. You know, they come out with something else. I wouldn't even know if it was the same company. Yeah, I mean, he talks a lot about the, the cost of um, price dropping. Um, it's interesting. He says selling based on price is like heroin. The short term gain is fantastic. But the more you do it, the harder it becomes to, to kick the habit. Mm-hmm. Once buyers mm-hmm. get used to paying a lower than average price for a product or service, it is very hard to get them to pay more. For sure. I mean, it's funny. In the last chapter, we were talking about Hitler and now we're talking about hard drugs. So <laughs> all the good things. <laughs> all the good things in society. Yeah, it, it's totally true. I mean, we had a client that was selling, they were selling a, a SaaS device and they had their own patent. They could make it into the industry really well. And they insisted on selling it at a pretty low price. And I just, I remember thinking, like, it's not a good idea. You're a really small team. You have a really unique product. Why would you try to make it into a market that's saturated by Chinese competition at a really low price? I mean, it just, it totally went against their ethos as being completely unique. Mm-hmm. So I think people just, they look at, the short gains and you know we just want to get in the market that's mm-hmm. not a long-term strategy so yeah yeah I, I mean that the second manipulation that cynic brings up I think is really closely linked to price I mean mm-hmm. I almost wonder is it actually a separate manipulation or is it kind of one of the same because mm-hmm. it's the same argument I mean so the 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 example that he gives is General Motors um, and he says that in the, I think in the 1990s or maybe just afterwards, um, they were offering cashback incentives of between $500 and $7,000. So for a long time, this was working. People were buying their cars, buying their trucks, and sales were were good. Um, But then obviously that is not a sustainable model. You You can't be selling at a loss for a long period of time. So they rolled that incentive back. Um, And then as a result, you know, people stopped buying their cars. and uh, sales plummeted and they they basically they'd got used to they had the expectation now that they would have a price drop um and so when that was taken away from them they they just they didn't want the product anymore right um, they weren't loyal to the brand they were loyal to to the cash they were getting yeah and the minute that wasn't there they were fine running to the competition exactly it was it was interesting him talking in this same promotion section, he talks about um, breakage and slippage. Um, I wasn't familiar with those terms before, so that was interesting uh, to hear about that. So, essentially, breakage is when you offer a promotion, um, but a certain percentage of customers fail to take you up on that promotion, so you still end up making the full price um, mm-hmm. as the seller. Um, so, essentially, you're hoping that people aren't organized enough to to claim their rebate Mm -hmm. oh yeah those those things kill me because (laughs) you and it's i i'm sure everyone has been sucked into one of these is you think oh this is such a great deal i'm gonna send this in i'm gonna get all this money and you totally forget and then when you remember it's like the day after it was due Mm. and but they but that that's such a yucky feeling because you as a consumer or they were counting on you as the consumer to do that. So they were counting on you to buy it under false pretenses that you would be getting money back and then you forgetting and them getting to sell you a product at full price. That's just, yeah, and it, like, 
really? That's part of your the ethos of your company to come up with ideas to fool the customer. <laughs> and, and it struck me as well that I mean nowadays, uh, I mean he talks about how rebates usually require someone to you know get a copy of their receipt and cut out a piece right. or cut out some kind of coupon or whatever and fill in some form um, and send that in via the post. But it struck me that nowadays with the internet um, and everything being online, that that would be an even harder manipulation to carry out, mm-hmm. you know, because people would be like, well, this, this, why, why are you getting me to post something, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so Katie, I'm wondering what you think about the next two manipulations that Sinek talks about. He talks about fear and aspirations. Um, and when I read these two parts, it struck me that they were extremely similar. Mm-hmm. So he says that, um, I mean, he argues that that fear, real or perceived, is arguably the most powerful manipulation of the lot. But then with aspirations, he says that um, if fear motiv- motivates us to move away from something horrible, aspirational messages tempt us towards something desirable. Yeah, so he says that marketers often talk about the importance of being aspirational. And he also says that aspirational messages are most effective with those who lack discipline or have a nagging fear or insecurity that they don't have the ability to achieve their dreams on their own. So it just struck me that this is, again, playing on fear just in a very different way and in a very sinister way, Um, far more sinister than just using fear up front. I mean, in the fear section, he says, um, for example, we might use fear to get people to wear their seatbelts or or to engage in healthy behaviours by warning that, you know, they'll get some kind of disease or they'll be in some kind of car accident. So kind of fear is an appropriate motivator almost, even if it's not particularly effective. Whereas in aspirational messaging, what we're essentially saying is we're, we're targeting people who have enough insecurity that this aspirational me- messaging will make them feel bad about themselves. And because of that, they will then engage with our product. It just feels, yeah, it feels very sinister to me. Yeah, because it's like giving you massive amounts of false hope. Mm. It's like fear, you know, every parent uses fear once in a while, especially if you have <laughs> small children, you don't want them to wander off. Sometimes fear is appropriate. But aspiration is almost worse in some, what you're saying, and I think I agree with, is that it gives you, it's like a real cruel to make people think that they were going to have something really amazing and then it doesn't come to fruition or it doesn't Mm -hmm. happen. And so there is something more, there is something more kind of mean about that tactic than fear at some level because fear it's it's like in your face that it's supposed to scare you mm-hmm. versus aspiration is a bit of trickery yeah it's it's not fair because you know these aspirational messages almost limit us you know they, mm-hmm. they limit our capabilities they, they limit our ability to think healthily about ourselves about our bodies they, they're playing those those insecurities um Right. And and yeah, it just feels I feel like this piece is why sales and advertising has a bad name. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of countries are moving towards not allowing a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I know. I don't know if it's I know some European countries aren't allowing, for example, sugary snacks and stuff like that mm-hmm. to be advertised during children's programming or, you know, you can no longer advertise cigarettes 
um, alcohol is being restricted to certain times of day in the United States, stuff like that. So there are some restrictions, but for the most part, advertising has has free reign to do what they want, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's a presumption that we all aspire to the same thing, you know, that we all want to be the same. It's it's moving us towards, it's it's moving us away from diversity, you know, and and to this kind Mm -hmm. of monochrome view of the world. It just really doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, I think that also plays into his next point, which is peer pressure. Um, Mm. Pretty... It's, it, I mean, they're all pretty interwoven and interconnected. Yeah, that's what I thought. He just really makes them very secular. You know, he really pulls them out and gives, like, very specific examples of each one. But he says, um, peer pressure works not because the majority or the experts are always right, but because we fear that we may be wrong. And I think fear again. Yeah, it's fear mm. and it's you know, what other people think of us, it's perception, it's all of those things. I mean, I think that's kind of the FOMO thing. You know, you're kind of worried you're going to miss out or you're not going to, you know, you're not in with the trend or whatever it is. So people, it pushes people to do something that maybe they wouldn't normally do. Yeah. Uh, What I liked about this piece was he said, um, have you ever had a sales rep try to sell you some office solution by telling you that 70% of your competitors are using their service? So why aren't you? But what if 70% of your competitors are idiots? (laughs) (laughs) I quite enjoyed that. (laughs) This is so true. I mean, it it is that kind of herd mentality. Oh, everybody else is doing it. So so I, I better do it too. Right. And I think it's funny, he does do a good example of using celebrities and how they yeah. use celebrities for peer pressure. And I think the example of the Sam Watterson actor from Law & Order is so good because he says, so Sam Watterson of Law & Order fame, for example, sells online trading from TD Ameritrade. For, but for his celebrity, it's uncertain when an actor famed for convicting homicidal maniac does for the brand. I guess he's, he says, I guess he's, quote, trustworthy. I mean, I think Where, whereabouts is that? That's at the very bottom of the peer pressure piece. No way. Yeah. So I don't have that in my book. Really? Mm. I've got Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods in my book. So do I. But then he uses the last example is Sam Watterson. No way. Okay, you must have an updated version. Or I have an old version. Hold on. Sidebar. When was yours published? Uh, does it say that? Oh, uh, 2019. Yeah, I have that too. That is so oh, weird. So weird. Okay. Why wouldn't you know why? It's very interesting because that is a very American reference. And I wonder, you ordered it probably through Amazon UK. Yeah. And I wonder if he, they took it out for that reason. Oh, that is interesting. That is so weird. That is so interesting. And it's so, <laughs> that to me is so funny because he's basically, I wonder if he does that for all his books. We'll have to look. You know what I mean? In the sense that yeah. he's targeting it to the point that he's taking out references that might not resonate with you. I mean, was Law & Order even a big series in the UK? I have heard of it. Um I mean, I didn't personally watch it myself. Yeah, and the Ameritrade ads would never have been in the U.S. I mean, in the U.K. Yes, that's probably why. Yeah. It wouldn't make any sense. 
That is so interesting. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> talk, about, talk about personalization. Yeah. Anyway, okay. back on to the book. Yes. <laughs> this is a great, the next part, I can't just start talking, is novelty, what he also refers to, also known as innovation. And he gives the example of the Motorola Razor phone, which all of people of my generation, I'm sure, had one. I did, and everyone thought they were the coolest thing. Yeah. The flip phone. And... Um, Motorola was like the top of the market, which is crazy. But they basically were like, we have this awesome product. No one is going to be able to come up with anything better. Why would we even try and innovate? And then we're completely blown out of the water by every competitor, basically. Nokia, anyone that came along next. So I think that's so funny he says here. Um I think, what does he say that I thought was interesting? So Motorola had successfully designed the latest shiny object for people to get excited about, at least until a new shiny object came out. And that's the reason these features are more mm. a novelty than innovation. They are added in an attempt to differentiate, but not reinvent. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is interesting. I think innovation gets thrown around so much these days. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, in management consultancy, we often hear this, right? I mean, they say that they're innovating, but often all they're changing is their cost structure right. or, or the way they package their services. It's not true, truly unique, and it's not truly different, is it? No, no. But it's it's really kind of one of those things where it's like, do we want to rock the boat? This is working really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, our our friend Apple shows up again uh, in this in this chapter. Um, he's talking about. Um, basically the way that the mobile networks are run. Um, and he says that Apple announced that they would tell the service provider what the phone would do, not the other way around. Um, and that was truly innovative because that changed the industry. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, it just, it's easy, I suppose, to think of new product ideas. But to actually change an industry, what that made me think about was the fact that it requires quite a lot of abstract thought. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time... Um, service providers just set the rules, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and phone providers went along with it. And so to to find a way to completely turn that on its head, it requires a, a great deal of creativity. And that's all about culture and leadership and, and allowing the space for that kind of creativity to happen, right? Yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you say. that It's really, really high-level, complex thinking. It's not just thinking of a product. Yesterday I had a call with um, an old classmate and he's developing a product for the, what do you call it? Like refreshment beverage industry. And the idea is that you buy the, you buy a bottle from them. So the bottle you can reuse and reuse. I mean, it's sustainable. And then you buy packets and the packets mixed with water carbonate and become soda. Right now they're just launching with, um, like fruit flavored, but it has natural electrolytes in it. It really has natural essence in it. So it tastes really good. But the notion is to reduce plastic, reduce space. Mm -hmm. So imagine going to a grocery store and not having like beverage cans, Coke and all that stuff in an area. But it's really interesting because instead of him saying, I want to invent a new beverage, like just another beverage you put on the shelf, another monster drink, another Red Bull, He's like, I'm going to change, I'm going to invent a beverage, but I'm going to change the way it's presented to the, the customer 
and the way people think about this, like a beverage product. So that to me is innovation. That's amazing. And that would be really cool. Yeah. So Katie, do you have any criticisms of the text of this chapter? You mentioned earlier that it fell a little bit flat to you. Why is that? I think just because they're, the thing about Cynic, and it's also because we do read a lot of him, is that it starts to feel, it's super repetitive in the sense it's like, okay, I've heard this story, I read it before. And like we've said before in previous podcasts, he uses kind of, I don't know if easy is the right word for his case studies, but they are things that that aren't too complex. Like, And I know, I think he does it on purpose, obviously, so it's easy for the non-seasoned maybe marketer person business person to digest Mm -hmm. so I did feel that it was it was longer than it needed to be like he could have definitely edited a bit maybe truncated some parts but but that's from a literary perspective from a perspective of him trying to really hammer the idea away I think he obviously did a really good job because you can't now go into chapter three not understanding the whole nexus of his book Mm mm-hmm what do you think? Did you like, I mean, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I did find it a little bit repetitive. I did find some of the examples. Um, uh, funny enough, I, I found that some of the examples weren't terribly clear, um, that d- didn't kind of make the point in, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, in the peer pressure section, he says, a double blind study conducted at a top university concluded, blah, 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 blah. Um, and you know that's that's part of some some kind of um, persuasive commercial for whatever you know the, using using science really mm-hmm. uh, to to push a product. Um, it just struck me: is that really peer pressure, or is that just advertisers using science wrong? <laughs> yeah, that's true. And yeah. honestly, I think a lot of us look for some sort of for certain products. You do want to have some scientific backing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I don't I agree with you. I don't. I'm not sure it's peer pressure. It's just. If it's used wrongly, it's manipulative, but I don't know if it's peer pressure. Yeah. I mean, as, as a doctor, I just, I picked up on that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, double blind studies are really important. research. <laughs> They're really important. And, and we actually use them to influence decisions for good reason. So, yeah. Oh, another piece um, that I had issue with, actually. Um the short-term gains that drive business in America today are actually destroying our health. Um, and, and he's talking about how ultimately advertising promotions and pressure all around us result in stress. And I, I do think that is true. Um, I mean, it probably is true, but it, it is a big claim to make that it's just destroying yeah. people's health, just purely bad and manipulative, manipulative advertising is, is destroying our health. It just seems like a big thing to say. <laughs> Well, I think Simon Sinek is, we've said this before off the podcast and probably on, is kind of the king of blanket statements. (laughs) (laughs) So true. (laughs) So let's move on. This part of the book club is a reading structure called Thought Leadership Analysis. Now, we have our own particular way of defining thought leadership, although we know there are other definitions out there. But we think of it as something that causes us to do something, to stop doing something, or to change something. So Katie, I believe you've chosen a passage from the text for us to analyse. 
I have indeed. So to really make you feel this passage and to imagine yourself as a leader and all that, I want you to close your eyes and think of yourself as a leader. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Though loyal customers are less tempted by other offers and incentives, in good times, the free flow of business makes it hard to recognize their value. It's in the tough times that loyal customers matter most. Hmm. Can you read it again for me? Of course. Though loyal customers are less tempted by other offers and incentives, in good times, the free flow of business makes it hard to recognize their value. It is in the tough times that loyal customers matter most. Hmm. That's interesting. Could you give me a bit of context around that statement? So he, this piece is in the second to last section of the chapter, and it's called Manipulations Lead to Transactions, Not Loyalty. Hmm. What kind of came out for me was maybe one of the reasons we don't take customer loyalty seriously is the fact that we don't want to face the idea that we may fall on hard times. I mean, as a business leader, that's a tough reality to consider, um, Mm -hmm. an unpleasant one, really. Um, So if loyal customers are kind of a safety net for hard times, if, if we're not if we're not considering that that might happen to us, then I can see why that would be overlooked in some mm. ways. Mm. Right. I mean, I think that it's so funny because you have you have people often complain. For example, here in I'm I'm in Spain, and people will complain about um, the telecom companies. So <laughs> you've been with the telecom company forever, or a, you know, a mobile provider forever, and. If you're a new customer, you get like some awesome deal, you know, uh, it's like 20 pounds <laughs> a month for unlimited blah, 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 blah data. And then if you've been with them for like 20 years, you're paying like 40. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think his point is that not great leadership or not great organizational focus will push you to just think of customer acquisition, to just think of the, the here and now, the short-term sales, the short-term gains. And not mm-hmm. think of the, the longer trajectory, the long-term customer that's been with you forever. And their value is much more than the new guy who might walk out the door the minute things get hard. Yeah. Uh, what it reminded me of was, um, you know, the last scene of It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah. Um, spoiler alert, where everyone turns up at George Bailey's house and um, and gives him the money that he needs to yeah. get out of trouble. Um, because he'd been so kind and, and such a great um a great businessman and a a good person for so many years um so yeah I mean I guess in the rosy sense of the word uh, loyalty yeah I I I get what he's uh what he's trying to say there um funnily enough the thing that cropped into the, the the thing that cropped up in my mind when you were reading that sentence wasn't actually something that was positive it actually provoked a kind of negative reaction in me. I'm not sure why, um, but I was thinking about products um, or services, a bit like your telecom story that I've used, um, that I kind of feel I don't want to be loyal to, but they are so good and and they meet my needs so much that I still am loyal to that brand. Like, like for example, um, I was looking for um, eco-friendly makeup 
um, a couple of months ago. Um, but it's really difficult to find brands that do that, that kind of sustainable um, makeup brands that do that kind of sustainable thing that also cater for women of colour. I just yeah. I couldn't find um, anything really that, that matched my skin tone. And so I ended up buying uh, the brand that I usually have and they're kind of not, I mean, they're, they're known for being positively dismissive about sustainability. <laughs> And so I, I resented it. They, like, willingly it. test on animals. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've res- no, they didn't test on animals, but they're just not very concerned about the environment. Um, and I just, yeah, I resented that kind of loyalty. It felt like a coerced loyalty. And I don't think that if they ever got in trouble, I would be running to help them in the same way that George right. Bailey's customers would um, run to pay off his debt yeah so yeah exactly I I I, I'm not sure that the the loyalty statement is always rooted in in good things so in saying that do you feel that it is a piece of thought leadership that comment that quote that doesn't make me want to to do something stop doing something or change something um I'm not sure it does actually yeah I I see a piece of thought leadership is something that creates, if not a positive emotion, sort of at least a, a determination, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that statement just kind of made me feel annoyed. <laughs> yeah, I found it difficult to find any good examples. Yeah, this is a this hard chapter. chapter. Mm. Because it's so, it just feels kind of, I don't know if preachy is the word, but it feels very almost textbook D. So it's okay. We all have our days, right? This, this chapter maybe wasn't meant to inspire. It was just meant to inform. Yeah. Yeah. People have bad days and books have bad chapters. (laughs) Right. We love Simon, but at the same time, we don't agree with everything he says. Yeah. It's good. It's a healthy, healthy relationship we have with him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now that we have defined that it is not thought leadership. Um, Let's move on to practical applications. This is the part where we talk about how we practically apply the advice in this book to our business. Last time we set ourselves the goal of embracing our expertise by making a video about a concept that seemed really obvious to us, but perhaps wasn't obvious to others. So, Angelie, did you complete that goal? I know why you're laughing. I know because neither of us have actually done it. (laughs) So, I tried, I I honestly tried to do it. I wrote out like a little, some some bullet points about what I was going to say, and I tried recording for a good two hours. You know, I did all my makeup, I put something nice on, and um, (laughs) I just uh, just found it so jarring. The whole experience was just really uncomfortable. I don't feel comfortable on video. I find it just really awkward and it's funny because you know I I I worked as a tv show host like as a, as a presenter for disruptive um and you would think that I was used to being on camera um but you were in but discussion in that see that yeah I think that's we have discussed that's also true. about doing these videos that we try and do them together so it's almost the podcast but we you see us versus just hearing us because I mean I think both of our personalities and the business we're in is you we don't see ourselves as the end all and know all so 
when you do a video talking to the screen, it almost feels as if you're saying, I know everything, listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) When we really don't believe that. I mean, we're doing this podcast to learn um, as we build our business. So I can see how it was uncomfortable. I, on the other hand, didn't even attempt it. (laughs) What's your excuse, Katie? (laughs) (laughs) Just not enough time to just, and it's, it's funny because, as we go through these books and as we go through this process, we are, you know, we, for example, we always thought we really knew our why. We think, I think we always did, but we just didn't really verbalize it well. Then last week we really found it. Um, and it's like the progression has been so quick and so changing with our business and we've been pitching a lot and having lots of conversations. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like it's a complete constant evolution mm-hmm. And I just felt like maybe the video wasn't a priority right now yeah. because I think that evolution and that refining of message in us and us and connecting with people and kind of building our community right now was more important. So No, I, I think it's a very important point that you bring up about um, priorities um, because as much as I hated doing the video, um, I think that that is something I could work through just with practice, you know, and um, I actually made a video for, for the career coaching mentoring stuff that I do as well. Um, and, and that was, that wasn't too bad. Um, and I sent it to someone and, and they, they really liked it. So I, I clearly can do it. Um, if I really put my mind to it, I can do it. Um, but it's, it's, it's saying that I'm going to commit to that. I'm going to take that chunk of time to, to practice, to get used to being in front of the camera and and doing all the editing that goes with a video. Um, and I, I do think it's really important to say that there's we only have a certain bandwidth and we need to conserve our energies and put them into the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like we wouldn't, it wouldn't be wise of us to not take our own advice um, and, and, you know, and keep to, to what we can manage. We've seen clients do this so many times, you know, try and make 75 different types of content and mm-hmm. really go down rabbit holes. And, and then none of the content is good because, you know, you're just trying to do, trying to do too many things. And I don't want that to be us. Right. So. so what goals should we set for ourselves next time that has nothing to do with videos? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fair enough. No videos, no more videos. Um, I mean, we can give ourselves some grace and say, if we do a video, bravo but maybe it shouldn't be a goal, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're creating this podcast. We've got our column with um, Business Game Changer magazine. We're putting together a pitch. We're doing tons of outreach and connecting with people. Exactly. We have two opportunities to speak at two big events that we need to get ourselves together to present. So, so we've got stuff going on. Yeah. Um, and we're both also busy mums trying to right. set up a business at the same time as running a family. So I right. think it's just worth saying that. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, the notion of leaning in, I actually just had this discussion with someone yesterday that if, as a woman, anyone that's a woman out there that's trying to lean in and do it all. I, in the words, I think of Michelle Obama, it's crap. <laughs> I think those were the exact words. They were stronger, but it's just not possible. So we will do what we can do but you cannot be getting an A in everything. So that's... I love that. Yeah. That's that's... Just, it's just the raw truth. In terms of a goal that we can set ourselves this time, 
I was thinking that since we've had so many conversations um, this week with various people, um, it just occurred to me that this notion of inspiration works kind of in both ways. This, this chapter is talking about being inspirational as a leader in order to motivate other people. But um, when we've had conversations just, you know, to get some advice, just to get somebody's viewpoint and, and have them be a soundboard for us this week, um, I found it really inspirational. Um, and, and it's really, I mean, it's given us ideas. It's given us motivation to do certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, yeah, it just occurred to me that perhaps we can look for inspiration in, in places that we don't necessarily expect to find it mm-hmm. um in order to help ourselves be more inspirational as leaders um and i think yeah i think when you're trying to build a client base it can be easy just to chase the conversations that will turn into leads um but we have got so much value from having conversations with people who have the ability to mentor us um that i think it's important to it's important to take that um take that seriously yeah, and for that to be, I think that it goes with our ethos in not making ourselves not being super self-centered mm-hmm. in the sense that we are not only connecting with people for self-serving reasons. We had a great conversation on Tuesday with an a person in the innovation space who basically helped us move the needle on a really cool idea that we have around a product for our company. And who knows, maybe in a year or two years time, something happens and, you know, there's something, some sort of synergy and he calls us to work together. Mm-hmm. But if not, the value we gained from that conversation and that kind of the start of that friendship and connection is totally more worth it than any sort of engagement we could get because it just builds our community of possible people to go to when we're doubting, which is when you're starting a business, really, really important. I mean, when mm. you have each other, that's great, but we need to have people outside of us to bounce ideas off of and to help us stay focused and help us keep innovating. Mm. So I think I agree with you. I think our maybe our goal should be, we have met a goal to not have so many calls anymore because we need to prioritize with this. We're really mm. passionate about this project, but maybe our goal is to have like one call a week and it be with someone that can almost mentor us more than, than give us work. Mm. And if work comes out of it, awesome. But right now we're in the mentor phase. Yeah. I I think in these early stages, um, our our dear friend, Anthony Burr, um, put this really well the other day. It's like, almost like when you're in a relationship, um, you know, if you, (laughs) you chase after the person and you keep asking them out and keep annoying them, then, they're less likely to go out with you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you want to make it clear that you're interested and that you're available, but you don't want to be, like, stalking them. <laughs> yeah. Not cool. Um, no. So in the same way um, in business, I mean, not that we have been doing this at all, but you don't want to appear desperate for business. You don't want to um, to sound like, you know, you're begging someone to give you work. Um, and so actually, in terms of, you know, in terms of self-respect and um, and feeling good about conversations as well, um, from that perspective, it's really nice just to have these conversations without any expectations on the table, just, you know, um, just, yeah, soundboarding ideas. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think we're going to learn a lot doing that. Cool. 
So we've come to the end of our book club meeting today, but do join us next time when we'll be moving on to part two of the book, very exciting, which is called An Alternative Perspective. You have been listening to Boss Versus Book with me, Angelique Pereira. And me, Katie Romero-Finger. Please find us on Twitter at Boss Versus Book or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast is brought to you by Sensfera. It is produced and edited by Angelique Pereira and Katie Romero-Finger and our music is by Guyam. A huge thank you to friends of the podcast, Stephanie Romero, Rob Harbron, Antonio Pinto, Hannah Kaji, Sergio Patel, Anthony Burr, Rebecca Johnson, Vanessa Quinlan, and of course, the very weird but very wonderful Chris Hafner. Have a great week and remember, no business story is linear. So join us in the glorious muddle.